Today's reading is taken from Revelation chapter 12, from verse 1 to verse 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour, devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But a child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated but there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. This is the word of God. Thank you. I found myself saying, thanks be to God there. That's the Anglican response. As we come to God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that your word tonight would once again be our rule, your spirit, our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern. This we ask in the name of your precious son. Amen. Uh, the outline for tonight is on the website, on the resources tab, if you need an outline to follow along. Uh, I hope in a smaller group we can, I'm actually quite open to people interrupting and heckling and asking questions along the way. It um, helps me stay awake and hopefully it'll help you stay awake. Uh, the topic for this talk, uh, Revelation 12 and 13, uh, is the spiritual context of mission, the spiritual context of mission. Uh, and, and basically, the spiritual context is Ephesians 6. You know, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The spiritual context of missions, as I think you and I well know, is spiritual war. And it seems to me that uh, you can go to any number of missions conferences and hear about the great needs in the 1040 window or the Muslim world or the unreached or as CMS calls them, the, the gospel poor people groups of the world, Bible translation portions that are still needed, uh, business as mission, diaspora mission, aid and development mission. There are a plethora of topics you can talk about at a, at a missions convention, all great and worthy topics. I can talk about 
most of them for hours on end. But it seems to me that we hardly get to missions conferences and talk about spiritual warfare, which is, after all, the spiritual context of all gospel missions. I'm convinced that when you peel back all the layers of all the topics and all the challenges facing uh, the global mission community, you'll finally come down to, to this and this chapter, actually, that all mission takes place, all the challenge takes place in the context of spiritual warfare. That mission is, is ultimately a great spiritual struggle between Satan and the Lord Jesus. Uh, and the beautiful thing for us is we know the end of the story. The lamb wins. You know, the lamb has already won. But we also know that the serpent is a mighty foe. He's vicious. He's cunning. He's angry as a cut snake, as our American friends would say. And he will find heaps of different ways to frustrate the cause of the gospel. Uh, discouragement and doubt, disunity, discord, opposition, persecution. These are all the tools of his trade. So, so if we are to make progress in mission, we must ultimately and fundamentally make progress in the spiritual war that we're in. And we have to understand the conditions of war, the objectives of war, and the strategies of war because mission is spiritual war. Now, we know this because we read it clearly in Revelation and Revelation 12. So come with me to the text. Uh, my first heading is the woman, the dragon, and the child. A great sign appears in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. That is, she is as bright as the sun, ruling over the moon, with the queen's crown on her head, with 12 stars, you know, 12, the God's number, uh, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 24 elders. So she's on God's side. And as we heard, she's, she's pregnant. And then we get introduced to her dreadful enemy, this enormous red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, all symbols of power and might, uh, seven crowns. So it too has power to rule over the earth. Um, verse four, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. This is an echo uh, of Daniel chapter eight and verse 10. Uh, this dragon is Satan with horrendous power to inflict damage on the stars, the saints of God, uh, of which we have already heard. And further, we read that this dragon is crouching in front of the woman, ready to devour her child the moment he's born. He's the great enemy of the woman and the child. And the child is clearly his mortal enemy. That's why he's there, ready to grab it, right? And the child is clearly Jesus, a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with, with an iron scepter. The famous quote from Psalm 2, prophesying Christ. Well, what happens? In the narrative here, she gives birth, but the dragon doesn't get Jesus. Uh, Herod kills all the babies in Judea, but Jesus escapes, doesn't he? Snatched up by God to his throne. And the woman, well, she flees into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for, we read in verse 6, 1,260 days. Now, that number is significant. All numbers in Revelation are significant. Uh, it's synonymous with the phrase, a time, times, and half a time. Uh, you see that phrase uh, later on in uh, verse 14 that we didn't read. 
Uh, and it's a phrase and a number that occurs in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 12. And it uh, always has the same meaning. It means a long but limited amount of time in which there's persecution. So the picture is God knows. God knows exactly how long this is going to go for. It's going to be tough, but it's limited and God's protection will be upon you. Now, in case you thought um, this woman giving birth to Jesus was Mary, uh, you were wrong. Uh, instead, this woman stands for the people of God. The 12 stars on the crown tell us that. This is a picture of God's people giving birth to God's Messiah. It's a picture of the Old Testament covenant people of God uh, from which Jesus, the Jewish infant, is born. And after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he goes up to God on his throne. The, the people of God, this woman, this, the people of God are nevertheless protected by God from the dragon for that limited period of time. Please hear what this vision is saying. It's saying, we will experience the wilderness years, difficulty, persecution, warfare, thanks to the dragon, but it will be limited and God will fight for us. You know, we read, Michael, the archangel, and his host will defeat Satan and cast him down. The entire description between verse 7 and verse 17 is one of a terrible spiritual war. And so we come to my next heading, war in heaven and on earth. Uh, please notice the detail of the war. First, uh, verse 8, Satan and his angels are not strong enough to overcome Michael and his forces, so they lose their place in heaven. And this is exactly what the Bible tells us about the origin of Satan. You know, He used to be one of God's angels, and then he and the rebellious crew were cast down. That is, we don't live in a dualistic universe. I said this last night. It's not as if Satan and God are equally powerful and they're going to fight it out and that's a spiritual war. No, Satan was always subordinate to God. He rebelled. He was cast down. And for whatever reason, God allows him this period of time in history to wreak havoc on the world. His power is real. We read verse 9. He has every capacity to lead the whole world astray. But his power is limited. For the voice thunders out from heaven. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. The accuser is hurled down. And the brothers and sisters have triumphed over him, we read. How? Why? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink forth from death. Verse 11. Uh, please notice again, this, this is simply, it's repetitious, isn't it? It's a recap of what we've already seen in Revelation. We're a suffering glory people. Our victory has already been won. Verse 11, we've already triumphed. Please notice it's in the past tense by the blood of the Lamb. But it's a now but not yet kind of victory. Already won by Jesus on the cross, but not yet fulfilled. The war is still on. The devil we read, is filled with fury because he knows his time is short, verse 12. Now, the most apt way to describe this, just about every commentator uses it, and if you've heard a sermon from Revelation before, you've heard this before. The best way to describe this is using that image from World War II. You know, this is the period of time between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day is the day the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy. And V-Day was Victory in Europe Day, the day the German forces surrendered in Berlin. D-Day was on the 6th of June, 1944. 
And V-Day was on the 8th of May, 1945. That's 11 months. Now, if you were Germany, you knew from the moment that the Allies landed on Normandy and gained a foothold in Western Europe, the war was over. You were done, okay? Because you'd, you were sandwiched. You had them on the Western side and you had Russia on the Eastern side completely encircling you. You were done. But did Hitler's Germany give up on the 6th of June, 1944? Not for a moment. In fact, some of the fiercest fighting of World War II happened in those 11 months between D-Day and V-Day, when ultimate victory was already assured. But they didn't give up. They were filled with fury, knowing that their time was short. Well, just like that for Satan. His army lives in that period between the cross of Christ, when victory is already assured, the lamb wins, and V-Day, the day when Christ returns and his victory is firmly established and made known and made clear to all. You know, between D-Day, it is done, it is finished day of Calvary, and V-Day, when it's total victory and glory to God day, when every I shall see and every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus, right? Does he give up? He doesn't give up. Satan doesn't give up. In fact, some of the fiercest fighting in our spiritual war is yet to come. That, my friends, is the spiritual context of missions. So come with me back to verse 13. Uh, the dragon pursues the woman. Satan pursues the people of God. But God gives her wings to fly and escape to a place where she'll be cared for for a time, time, and half a time, 1,260 days, that limited time out of the serpent's reach. Verse 15, Satan does not give up. The fiercest fighting and opposition is yet to come. He spews out like water, like a torrent to drown her. But the very earth comes to her rescue, for all creation belongs to our sovereign God. It's a picture of an escalating spiritual war, isn't it? The stakes get higher and higher. Verse 17, Satan gets enraged and goes off to keep waging the war. The fiercest fighting is still before those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Now, that's, that's basically the point of chapter 13 as well. It's another recapitulation of the same themes. Now, in chapter 13, uh, our heading here is the dragon, the beast, and another beast. Uh, if the dragon is Satan, then who is this next beast who comes out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads? Now, for the original hearers of the letter uh, in the ancient Roman world, they would have immediately thought of the Roman Empire, you know, Rome built on seven hills. Ten crowns maybe for ten emperors, then they'll scratch their heads and do their recent history. Which ten emperors, um, each with a blasphemous name, they were all called Caesar, Lord and God. You know, there's, the beast is like a leopard, a bear, a lion that is powerful, ravenous, dangerous beast, all capable of doing great harm. And please notice the dragon gave the beast his power. Verse 2, end of verse 2, and throne and great authority. That is, the power of the Roman Empire comes ultimately when you peel all the layers back from Satan. Verse 3, one of the heads or emperors looks like it had been killed, but behold, it's now alive. Now, does that sound familiar to you? It's, it's a kind of fake resurrection emperor, isn't it? You can't beat Jesus, so you pretend to be like him. You know, pretend to die, pretend to have a resurrection. And, and it works because we read the whole world is filled with wonder and followed that beast. 
not only the beast, but also verse four, the dragon, because the dragon had given authority to the beasts. So together they blaspheme God and have power over the world. Power over, please notice verse seven, every tribe, people, language, and nation. Does that sound like Revelation 7 verse 9, our theme verse? You know, the great multitude from every tribe, people, language. Again, it's kind of fake God, fake multitude, fake redeemed people of God. The beasts will have power over all of God's people all over the world by being that fake God. And spiritual war will afflict every people of the world. We, we aren't exempt in the minority world any less than our brothers and sisters in the majority world. It just, it just looks different here. Satan's tactics just look different here. If, if you've not reread the screw tape letters in the last 24 months, maybe it's time. You know, In that book, that classic C.S. Lewis says, amongst other things, uh, that in, effectively in power fear cultures, Satan turns up uh, powerful and generating fear. But in modern enlightened cultures, Satan comes up as a cartoon figure uh, with deception rather than outright fear. So we read verse 10, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the people of God. Okay. If we understand that this is the true spiritual context of mission, then we'll understand that progress in mission, progress in this spiritual war, isn't actually about being smart enough or having the right evangelistic training tools or raising enough money or resources to fix some problem A, B, or C. No, no, no. Progress in this spiritual war, in mission, is about understanding the context. We've already won. The lamb wins but the fiercest fighting is still before us. And we still need to take the fight to the enemy. We still need to uh, sharpen our strategies for gospel proclamation and overcoming sin in the world. And some of us will go into captivity. Some of us will be killed by the sword. All will require endurance and faithfulness while we press forward to V-Day when Jesus returns. But wait, there's another beast uh, from verse 11. Now, the whole point of this next beast from verse 11 through to verse 18 uh, is that it's authorized by the first beast to do essentially the same thing, persecute the church. It's got two horns, so it's got real power. Uh, it, it speaks dragon speak. You know, It's got the dragon's power over the world. Uh, verse 13, it can do great signs and wonders that end up deceiving the world. And its deception causes the world to worship the first beast. In fact, it forces everyone to worship the first beast on pain of death, verse 15. It goes so far as to mark out every person on the world as belonging to the beast. Without the mark of the beast, you can't function in society. You can't buy or sell. You're excluded unless you take the mark and worship the beast. And what is the mark? Uh, it's a number. There it is, the famous number at the end. It's 666. Um, What's your car number plate? Never mind, don't tell me. I used to have a neighbor whose car number plate was 666. Turns out he was a really nice guy, Greek Orthodox worshiper. Well, the point of 666 is simply this. It's, again, it's fake Jesus. It's 
the beast, the dragon, the beast, and the beast. It's like a fake trinity, right? Trying to be like God. And 666 is basically one less than 777. You know, God's number is seven. And here, Satan, the dragon, the beast, and the other beast is trying to set itself up as a fake trinity, trying to be like God, but not quite. Just one less. 666, not 777. Please notice it's a picture of complete social dominance. Uh, and this is exactly what our first century brothers and sisters in Christ saw happening around them. You know, worship the beast, worship Caesar or be excluded from society. You know, participate in idolatry and false worship in the city or in your trade guild or, you, or you'll be excluded, excluded from economic activity and from society. Agree with the religious views and the morality, uh, the sexual ethics of Roman society or you'll be shunned and marginalized from your society. Now, does any of that sound familiar to you today? <laughs> it just, it's, there's nothing new here. It's simply what happens time and time and time again in human history. That Christians are pressured to conform to the false gods of the world that the dragon is in charge of. Uh, Richard Foster identified those false gods as money, sex, and power in uh, his titular book from years ago. Some of you are nodding, you know that book. Uh, Tim Keller basically plagiarized that book and wrote counterfeit gods. Same thing, money, sex, and power. You know Jerry Bridges, I love Jerry from The Navigators. Uh, he wrote, uh, after counterfeit gods, he wrote respectable sins. Same thing, money, sex, and power. Make no mistake we'll be fighting this same spiritual war again and again until V-Day, until Christ returns. Uh, but just in case now the Christians in the room are getting a bit depressed and discouraged, <laughs> the Lord gives John another encouraging vision for them and for us. And that comes in the form of chapter 14. Uh, then we look and before John is the lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000 who had not six, six, on their, six on their heads, but his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And he hears a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and the peal of thunder, harpists playing their harps and then singing a new song. And no one could learn a song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed. And these are those who did not defile themselves from women, for they remain virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. It's, a, it's another vision of the great multitude worshiping God. Uh, now, I'm married with three kids. They're all mine and Valerie's. They're not adopted. So I'm, I'm a bit puzzled as to how verse four might apply uh, and whether I might not make it. Uh, please don't read it that way. It's just a picture of uh, absolute purity and holiness of those worshipping the Lamb. See, John is showing us in this next vision that despite all the difficulties and persecution and suffering and even death, all the challenges of spiritual war, the Lamb wins. God's 144,000 will stand there on the last day, redeemed, undefiled, purchased by the blood of the Christ, blameless, blameless. Uh, in verse 6, he sees an angel uh, flying, uh, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. There's that four-part description again, saying, fear God and give him glory. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the springs of water. 
you know, fear God and worship him in the midst of everything that might happen in spiritual war. Just keep fearing God and worshiping him. A second angel comes and says, yep, judgment is here. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. You know, in other words, in victory day is coming. Hold fast. Don't give up. Don't take the mark of the beast, no matter what. Don't give in to idolatry, money, sex, and power, and, and worship of this beast and of this world uh, over which he has such power and authority. You know, hold fast. Uh, verse 12, have patient endurance. That is what is called for on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then he hears a voice from heaven say, write this, write this down, John. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. See, the final picture from uh, the, the rest of this chapter, chapter 14, from verse 14 to 20, is one of final victory and judgment. When the Son of Man will come with his sickle of judgment and reap the harvest of final judgment, justice will be executed. Those destined for the great winepress of God's wrath, verse 19, will be crushed. So what have we seen? What have we seen across these three chapters, you know, big mega picture chapters? Well, we see that it's, it's actually hell on earth, but heaven is coming. That is, there's great satanic opposition to the people of God and the mission of God. Satan has real power and authority and influence over powers and rulers of this world. So we'd be daft to expect anything except opposition to the gospel at every level of human existence we can we can accept uh, expect persecution and even death it will be unrelenting and ferocious at times so we are to stand firm and be alert but not alarmed because we know it's coming so we're, we're to be alert to the schemes of the evil one uh, to the many ways in which satan and the world even governments of the world will oppose gospel ministry and gospel faithfulness but when that time comes, when, you know, something happens and the government does this or the government of that country does that, or has happened to some of our CMS missionaries just in the last fortnight, their visas just got, and they had to come back, you know, we're not alarmed. We might be disappointed, but, but we knew there was an off chance that this would happen because we've read the book. Being alert means being wise. You know, Jesus says, very striking phrase, be as innocent as doves, but as shrewd as serpents. When I was a young Christian, I went, the serpent is de the devil. What is he saying? <laughs> Jesus is actually saying, you've got to be shrewd. You've got to understand the politics of the day, the context of that country, the social political conditions that you're going to serve in, the cultural issues of that people group, the besetting sins of that culture versus that culture. Elements of all of those things will inevitably seek to oppose God and the progress of the kingdom. But there will also be opportunities because if you do that sort of military intelligence of the spiritual war, you will identify opportunities. Opportunities to wedge in the gospel and to winsomely witness to a loving Lord Jesus. This is exactly how uh, CMS goes about mobilizing and training um, new missionaries, really, because we want them to be prepared for the spiritual war. Uh, I sometimes say to people who come and talk to me about wanting to be a missionary, and I think I said this to my GP workshop yesterday, 
you know, if you're 22 years old and you had a dream last month in which the Archangel Gabriel came to your bedroom and said, the Lord says you've got to be church planting in Mongolia by Christmas. And that's why you've come to see me now at CMS. I'm going to say, God bless you, but you're probably not going to go with us. <laughs> you know, uh, it takes time. Uh, CMS is not that kind of missionary society. Uh, we, we want you to train hard in boot camp before you go to the front lines. We're a lot more long-term, slow burn. Uh, the average CMS missionary serves for over a decade on location, and that takes a certain amount of maturity and resilience and preparation and awareness of the many, 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 many different ways in which Satan will come and try and get you to go home. We believe in preparing our missionaries really, really well. That's called being alert. It's just called being alert to challenges in spiritual war. But how then, how then should we live? How then should you lead the people in your care in the ministries that you're involved with uh, at Cross Culture? Knowing that we live in the context of this great spiritual war between D-Day and V-Day, uh, how should we lead our people? Well, whatever we do, we shouldn't pretend that we live at peace, right? That would be wrong. I mean, I don't mean sell all your clothes and buy army fatigues and you know, do boot camp. I'm not saying that. And I, I certainly don't mean never take a break in life and enjoy a holiday or some of the nice things in life. But in my observation, far too many Christians in the minority world live exactly like the rest of our culture lives, as if we're already in heaven and we are at a time of peace. Now, you and I live in Melbourne. Uh, I know some of us online don't. Um, but we live amongst some of the most healthy and wealthy people who have ever lived at any time in world history. You know, our life expectancy and our public amenity testify to that. And Satan's tactic in, in our churches amongst us is obvious, isn't it? <laughs> He obviously wants to try and convince us that there's no spiritual war and we live in a time of peace, that heaven is already here. So just relax, guys. Enjoy. Peace, peace, cried the false prophets in the Old Testament, you remember? Now, if you, live in a, if you believe you live in a time of peace in a, instead of in a time of fierce spiritual war, then you're never, ever going to make the kinds of decisions and sacrifices that are necessary for you know, last week, uh, I saw on TV this really interesting story. In, in Ukraine, there's this beautiful glass-fronted shop front, right? And it used to be a shop selling drones, you know, for people to have cool toys and take photos with. And you know what it is now? It's now packed with engineers and people who've learned soldering and plastics manufacturing, and they're making drones to blow up Russian tanks. That's the difference between living at peace and living at war. Because we live in a time of war, we shape our prayers and our stewardship by those priorities. Because we live in a time of war, we stay responsive and open to what the captain of the host, you know, our supreme commander, the Lord Jesus, might ask of us. For some of us, he might say, go for me to such and such a place or such and such a person with the gospel. For other people, he might say, stay right here, build those drones. 
you know, be someone who organizes the logistics or organizes the pastoral and psychological care that's necessary for those guys whom we're sending to, the, to that part of the field. For all of us, he says, be alert, get organized, stand firm together, be of one mind and spirit. Victory is assured. The fiercest fighting might yet still be before us. Now, why missions in all that? Simply because missions is the way the Bible says we get from D-Day to V-Day. The goal of missions is our theme verse for this week, right? Revelation 7-9. That great multitude from every tribe and tongue and language and nation standing before the Lamb. How do we get to that vision? Well, we get to that vision through Romans 10. How will they hear unless someone preaches? How will someone preach unless they go? How will they go unless they are sent? In response to that, there are only really three, three responses. Uh, John Piper put it this way. Three responses to the gospel imperative. Go, send, or disobey. I don't recommend disobey. So our two options really are go or send. And the question is, the, the question really isn't, this is, this is the chip that I carry around with me. The question isn't, is the Lord asking me to go? That is the wrong question. The right question is, is there any reason in this spiritual war why I should stay? Because we are the most well-resourced, healthiest, best access to theological education kind of society. Is there any reason why you should stay? The only real reason, I think just about the only real reason to stay is because the Lord tells us that by staying, we can actually enable more people to go. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if this church, understanding the spiritual context of mission, had that attitude in every ministry, in every group, in every member who walked in the door? You know, we're all here together. We understand the stakes in a spiritual war. The real question is, is there a good reason for me to stay? If not, I'm going. And if you stay, we stay because we are convinced that God would have a stay as the most passionate, dedicated, sacrificial senders, of which there are many in this church, uh, and for whom I praise God. So there endeth the lesson and the small challenge. Let me say a quick prayer, and then we'll move on to the next part. Father, thank you for these three chapters, and thank you for the re realism of your word. It, it really does, Lord, explain the way the world is and why it is that there's so much suffering and opposition to the gospel and how it is that the church is placed here by you and motivated by you to make a real difference in this world for eternity. Lord, we trust in you. We trust in your captainship over the host. And we pray that you would make us increasingly faithful as members of your spiritual army. And we look forward to that day, Lord Jesus, when you will come to bring all things to their true end and call all of the suffering saints at last home to yourself. May we be found among their number, praising you and crying, salvation, salvation belongs to our Lord and to the Lamb. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.